Take your Bible and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 3, please. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 3. I trust and hope and pray that your Thanksgiving time with your family was fantastic. Uh, Family can be tough at times. Family produces the best things in life, and unfortunately, they can also produce the worst things in life. But to me, Thanksgiving is all about family. When I look back at my life and I look at the Thanksgiving holidays, it was all about the family getting together. Now, what's interesting to me about the subject of family is while the, the Bible offers an incredible amount of instruction on moms and dads and children and family collectively, there's not one example in your Bible of a perfect family. Not one. Did you know that? Not even the family of Jesus. Of all the families and their stories and their experiences, both Old Testament and New Testament, there's not one example of a perfect family. Now, that offers me at least three encouraging words. Number one, there's hope for my family. Number two, your family's no better than mine. Mine's no better than yours. We may have different problems, different struggles, different outcomes, but we're all the same. And number three, perfection in family is not the goal. It's not the goal. So mom, dad, take that enormous burden off of your shoulder. Because as I see it, there is no ideal family. There is no perfect family. What we do have, however, is something to shoot for. Something to go after. Something to chase as a dad. Something to hold on to as a mom. And now listen, I want to clear some of this up because many of you have probably never heard a message like you're going to hear today. And the way you currently parent is probably largely based upon the way your parents parented you. You see, many of us are under the mistaken notion that because I had parents, I know how to parent. Because I had parents... I know how to parent. That is no way to parent. That is certainly not the case. Because we had parents, we assume we know how to be parents. You see, your parents are your default setting for how to be a mom or how to be a dad. Your emotional computer growing up, you recorded everything. And you saved it on your hard drive. And so now that you're a mom or you're a dad... You revert back to those memory banks, and you parent one of two ways. Either you want to be just like your mom and dad, or you want to be nothing like your mom and dad. There are really only two options, and it's all based upon your memory bank. It's all based upon what you saved to your parenting hard drive, because your brain absorbed and recorded everything about your parents and your family, and all of that information you rely upon today. Listen, church, that's no way to parent. There is a better way to parent. Just because you had parents, that doesn't mean you know how to parent. That'd be like me saying, just because I had knee surgery, I know how to perform knee surgery, right? Would any of you trust me to open up your knee and fix what's wrong just because I had knee surgery myself? Absolutely not. No one would make such a mistake. We're all pursuing the ideal. What is the ideal family and what's it look like? 
The Bible offers many examples of bad parenting, but it also offers instructions on the ideal, what we should be chasing, what we should be going after. What happens when you realize your family is an ideal? What happens when it registers with you, my family is far from perfect? What do you do? Because I think most parents want an ideal family. When you bring home that little baby and you get over that, that first wave of fear, you know, when you're scared to death that you're just going to break it somehow, right? When you get over that and you start building your family, don't you want it to be ideal? Don't you want to raise and rear that little kid apart from the darkness that's in the world? The hate that's out there? The division, the dissension. Don't you want to somehow shield that little three-year-old, that 10-year-old? Don't you want to try and guide that 15-year-old because you're pursuing an ideal family? What do you do when you realize that's not happening? What do you do when you realize your family looks just like my family? What do you do? What do you do when the marriage disintegrates? What do you do when a teenager goes the wrong way? Well, I think we do one of two things. Number one, we either continue to pursue the ideal, we either have a family meeting, hey, let's remember there's certain things important here in this family. Respect is important. The balance of unconditional love and personal responsibility, that's important. You either continue to pursue that ideal, hey, in this family, we don't talk to one another that way. In this family, we're honest with each other. In this family, we show respect and love, or... You change the rules. You change the rules. You lower the standard. You alter the expectations. You blur the roles between mom and dad. You change the definition of family itself. That's what's happened to family in our culture. We've changed the rules. We've decided that A's really don't exist, so let's call B's A's. And let's make C's B's. And let's call D's average. And let's just erase the idea of failure. There is no F. There is no failure. You wouldn't stand for that in your school system. Why would we tolerate it for a minute in our homes? Now, wait. Before I go any further, I want to make one thing perfectly clear. This is not one of those back-in-my-day messages, okay? That's not what this is. I'm not trying to show my age here. That's not what this is about. But no one in this auditorium, no one can deny the cultural shift and the decline of family over the past four decades in our nation. No one. It's readily visible to anyone who wants to open their eyes and see it. Just a few minutes this afternoon on the internet, examining the 2019 census information, of the United States of America will reveal some pretty startling news regarding the decline of family in the U.S. For instance, did you know that grandparents or other relatives are now rearing and raising some three million American children? Three million of our children are being raised by someone other than their biological father or biological mother. That number has doubled, by the way, since 1980 when it was 1.5 million. Did you know, for instance, that 60% of children in America 
live with two parents. Barely half of our children in America live in a two-parent home. Only 46%, that's less than half of children, live with two parents in a first marriage. You follow? Less than half of our children in America live in a home where mom and dad got married and then had me. Less than half. Here's one. In 1960, that's 60 years ago, basically my lifetime. In 1960, one in 20, that's 5%, one in 20 children was born to an unmarried mother. Today, the number's 50%. That number has increased tenfold in 60 years. Watch this. 20% of children in America will see their married parents divorce. 20%. That's one in five. One in five children in America will watch mom and dad, married parents, divorce. However, 50% of children in America will see their unmarried parents split up. Now, I bring this to your attention because culturally speaking, we've swallowed the lie that living together is safer. Living together does less damage. Living together is better for the kids if things don't work out. Do you understand that we've now studied marriage, family, and children long enough in this country that we have mountains of data that prove otherwise? In every meaningful category, married men and women provide stronger home environments for children. In every meaningful category, it is better for a child to grow up with mom and dad in the home than it is to not. Look at the numbers again. 20%, one in five, will watch their married parents divorce, but one out of two will watch their cohabiting parents split up. Today we're going to examine what I consider to be the premier responsibility for parents in the auditorium. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, this ought to be number one on your list. If it's not the most important responsibility of parents, it definitely cracks the top three. It's one of those ideas that if you could get this right, you'll solve so many other problems. If you're a young parent today and you commit to this idea, you're going to be amazed at how many other good things come as the result. But now first, we've got to get something straight. I put it in the program. I'll throw it on the screen. Here it is, and it's big. Parents are responsible to encourage their children to listen to and respond to God. Parents are responsible to encourage their children to listen to and respond to God. Now, wait. Before I go any further, I want to make one thing perfectly clear. It is not my goal today to make you as a parent feel uncomfortable. Because your family didn't hit the mark, didn't strike the ideal. Confession, neither did mine. Remember what I said, we're all the same, mine's no better than yours, nor vice versa. We're all in this together, so to speak. But it's not my goal to make you feel uncomfortable. It's my goal to cause you to recommit to the ideal. To continue to pursue what God says is best. That's what's most important. So, parents are responsible to encourage their children to listen to and respond 
to God. Some of you are very concerned about the direction of our nation. I know so because I've had the conversation with you. Some of you watch the evening news in terror. And after it's over, you pray for your country, and rightfully so, you should. Some of you are very concerned with the direction of our country. Let me help you understand something. Let me help you connect the dots. The reason our nation has chosen the path it's currently on is because for decades, parents have ignored their premier responsibility, teaching children to listen to and respond to God. Think about it. There are loud, clamoring voices that your children are listening to today. Many of you have 18-year-olds as freshmen in college. They're in another city, perhaps even another state. And I guarantee you, as freshmen on a college campus, they have thoughts like this. I can't say that. I can't write that in a paper. Shame on me for even believing that, because that might offend someone else. That might hurt the feelings of someone who does it differently. Who's your 18-year-old listening to? Not God. Your 18-year-old is listening, been caught up in the voice of political correctness or the woke mob. That's who they're listening to. If you are a parent, father or mother, your child is 2 or 20, it is your responsibility, according to this book, to encourage that child to listen to and respond to God, period. Imagine for a moment, I want you to construct this image in your mind. Imagine for a moment a young man or a young woman navigating their way through high school, navigating their way through college, bent on listening to and responding to God. Imagine a 16-year-old who's beginning to date Falling in love, who's bent on listening to and responding to God. Imagine a young woman away at college who is bent on listening to and responding to God as she dates, and that relationship becomes more committed and more serious. Imagine a young man graduated from college, starting his own life, building his career, who manages money carefully and cautiously takes on debt because you taught him to listen to and respond to God. Imagine a young person, a teenager, a high school junior or senior who experiences setback, even rejection, but knows how to handle it, handles it with poise and determination and courage because you taught him how to listen to and respond to God. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? There are young people like that in our midst. There are young people like that in our community. There are young men and women like that who exist. Now, Hannah in the Old Testament is going to serve as our model for this idea. Hannah longed for a child. She begged God for a child, but she couldn't get pregnant. Again and again, she came before God, bless me with a son, bless me with a daughter, give me a child. Finally, she made a deal. It's recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11. God, if you will give me a child, then I'll give that child back to the Lord. 
I'll give that child back to you. That's like saying, I will be sure to take on the responsibility that my child listens to and honors you. That was Hannah's promise. Samuel, if you know the story, was actually raised in the temple. When Samuel was a baby, Hannah gave her to the priest. That's how she kept her promise. We read in 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 1. Follow me. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. Eli was the priest. In those days, the word of the Lord was very rare. There were not many visions. Now, let me explain what this means. Several hundred years earlier, in the days of Egypt and the emancipation, the exodus, Moses, and then Joshua, and then conquering the promised land, the fingerprints of God were everywhere. There were many visions. There were an incredible number of visions. The word of the Lord was everywhere you looked. God was heavily involved in the lives of his people. But then we get to the book of Judges. Judges is the second of 13 historical books in your Old Testament. And in the book of Judges, we find that there weren't many visions because the people lived in darkness. The people chose to listen to everyone and everything except God. In fact, the last verse in the book of Judges is as follows. In those days, everyone did what they thought was right in their own eyes. But then along comes Samuel. And in those days, there weren't many visions. But watch, that's all about to change. Verse 2, one night Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. Now the lamp of God, that was the menorah, the candlestick that had been around since the days of the tabernacle and Moses. It was lit at night, at dusk basically, and the candles burned all night until dawn. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, so we know this is happening sometime in the middle of the night. And Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark of God was. That was the ark of the covenant, also from the days of, of Moses. And verse 4, then the Lord called Samuel. Parents, God is calling your kid too. God is speaking to your child as well. You see, this is not a biblical thing. This is not some ancient historic fairy tale. Just as surely as God spoke to Samuel, God is speaking to young people in this auditorium. You, as their parent, want to encourage them to listen to and respond to that voice. Skip down to verse 8. A third time the Lord called. God spoke to Samuel, and twice Samuel ran to Eli. Samuel, Samuel, oh, must be Eli, runs to Eli. Yes, sir. Eli said, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. Verse 8. A third time the Lord called Samuel. Samuel got up, went to Eli. Here I am. You called me. Same thing. Then Eli realized that it was the Lord who was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, go and lie down. And if he calls you, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. That is the response you want from your 16-year-old. That is the response you want from your 12-year-old. That is the response you want from your children. Speak, Lord. I'm listening. 
Because I care what you say. I want to respond to your guidance. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. So then Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. And Hannah's promise of chapter 1 was fulfilled. How do you give your child back to God by teaching him or her to listen to and respond to the voice of God? Now, beginning in verse 11 and on down through verse 18, God explains to Samuel that, hey, Samuel, I'm about to move in Israel like never before. I know it's been a long time since there's been any word from me, any visions, but I'm about to speak, and I'm about to speak in a powerful way because I finally found someone who's willing to listen, and that was Samuel. Look at verse 19. And the Lord was with Samuel as he grew up. He let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. You know what that means? That means every prophecy that Samuel made concerning the king or the kingdom, every promise that Samuel made to the people on God's behalf came to pass, every one of them. Samuel was the last of the judges and the first, some say greatest, of the prophets. Verse 20, and all of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. Question. Why would parents ever let this responsibility slip through the cracks? If you're here today and this is the first you're hearing of this responsibility as a parent, well then, I'm going to let you off the hook. But when you leave today, you're right back on it. Follow me? Why would a parent let this responsibility go undone? I think a more common reason is not because we don't know how important this is. I think a more common reason for parents is we're busy. We're busy providing our family all the things that, going through our memory, going through our memory bank, examining how my dad parented, how my mom parented, that they say was most important. We listen to culture, popular culture, and we say, this must matter. And so we make every sacrifice and every effort to create a certain environment for our children. Is there anyone in this room who would disagree with this statement? Today's family is stretched. Stretched. We are busy. The lives that we live today that we consider normal, our grandparents, certainly our great-grandparents, would never have understood. But let me remind you of something. We may be sacrificing our children's permanent future for their immediate happiness. Who would want to do that? Why? Parents, let me remind you of something. It's your behavior, not your advice, that determines whether or not your children want to listen to you or God or anyone. It is your behavior, not your advice, that will determine whether or not your children want to listen to God. A lot of parents think it's their advice. That's why they give you those long speeches. That's why your dad sits you down and tells you all about how things were back in his day, right? Because parents think it's their advice, it's their counsel that determines whether or not a child will succeed or fail, listen or reject. A lot of parents assume it's our responsibility at the church. That's why I bring my kid to Kids Jam. That's why I drop my kid off on Wednesday night for Velocity. 
because it's up to Tyler or Amy. It's up to the Kids Jam team. It's up to the Velocity team. It's up to the church to make sure my kid learns how to listen to and respond to God. No, it's not. It's your behavior, not your advice, that determines whether or not your children want to listen to God. Some parents are so busy chasing after the wrong things. And if you pause long enough to consider it, you'd see it. Some of you might even be chasing the right things, all to create a certain environment for your kids. Let me remind you of Psalm 127. We examined this passage last time. Solomon wrote, in vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, because unless the Lord builds the house, all of your labor is in vain. I find there are basically two types of parents in the church, in the world. One type of parent, when it comes to parenting, is just not content. They're, they're not content. They're, they're not satisfied with what they have. That's why they work so much. Because this dad believes, again, probably based upon his default hard drive, it's what his dad did, it's what my mom did. This dad believes that in order to be successful as a dad, I gotta give my kid more than I had. And so the answer or the solution to every problem in the home is more money. So I've got to work more. I've got to get a better job. I've got to log more overtime hours. I've got to get a second job because the solution to the problem is more money. This parent is dissatisfied with the necessities. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter five, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This is meaningless. Because as goods increase, so do those who consume them. Church, there are parents in this auditorium who are caught up in this trap. The answer to every problem is more, more money, more income. That's what makes them dissatisfied. And then there are those who are satisfied. There are those who truly gave Thanksgiving this past Thursday. Because they're content with what they have. They look around and they say, man... We've got a roof over our head. We've got clothes on our backs. I'm warm at night when I sleep. We've got food in the pantry. We get to take a week or two off a year and go on vacation. We've got enough and extra. And they're content. And they're satisfied. These are the parents who recognize a child who listens to and responds to God is so much better off than a child with a swimming pool and a golf car. Okay? Now, don't misunderstand. I had a swimming pool. I had a golf cart. Okay? But that's not the big thing, Mom. That's not the big thing, Dad. I think when I rattle off statistics like I did earlier in the message, it's easy for some parents to pat themselves on the back. We compare ourselves to others. We look around. We feel pretty good about ourselves and our parenting. But let me remind you of something. If there is no difference between your family who call themselves followers of Christ and the family next door who rejects the things of God, what good is it? Shame on us. Shame on you. What if I were to go next door and ask your fifth grader, tell me, your family loves Jesus? My family loves Jesus. Well, tell me, what makes your family different 
from the family next door who doesn't? What would your child tell me? What would your teenager say to me? Well, uh, you know, we go to church sometimes. Oh, oh, and my little sister, she prays that God is greater prayer before we eat. That the best you've got? that the best you can do? No, it's not the best you can do. I know you're capable of so much more. Cleveland McDonald spent decades studying family, the impact of divorce on children, the decline of the family ideal in America. Decades, mind you, piling up mountains of research and data. In one of his books, he wrote, the secular home may be defined as one which pays no attention to God. I think all of us know what the term secular means. It's defined as one which pays no attention to God. Home life is conducted as though he does not exist. If I were to plant myself in your living room, could I recognize easily in some time, hey, God exists in this home or not? Please allow me to remind you of God's agreement. It's been around since the days of Joshua, and it hadn't changed all that much. God longs to love and bless and protect your family. It's part of who he is. He wants to provide. He wants to care. He wants to bless your family. He wants to guide your children. He wants to look out for your marriage. And he only asks one thing. Listen to me. Listen to and respond to me. To create the environment that I'm describing today, you don't have to learn a new language. You don't have to read some book. Let me offer you three quick things and I'll quit. Number one, identify the negative family patterns. There's where you begin. Identify what's wrong with the way you parent. Again, if your parents did not listen to and respond to God... How are you going to know how to teach your children to do it? If your parents did not listen to and respond to God, it's going to be a little bit more difficult for you to create this kind of environment in your home, but it can be done. Again, a million things have made up your life. A million. And these patterns have been subconsciously stored away, passed down from your parents to you. Your emotional computer saved everything. You are very likely repeating some of the negative patterns of your parents. Have you identified them? Let me ask you a simple question. How did your father handle conflict or problems? Now compare that with how you handle conflict and problems. How did your mother cope with stress and responsibility? How do you cope? How well did your parents listen to and respond to God? How well do you listen to and respond to God? Because remember, it's your behavior, not your advice, that determines the path your children will take. That's why you've got to identify those negative family patterns. Here's number two. Refocus then your family's priorities. Refocus your family. Determine what's going to be or become or what has been forgotten that should be most important to you.
Refocus your family's priorities. Make a list. I'm a big list guy. I love lists. There are enormous numbers of three by five cards and post-it notes all around my life because that's just the way I like it. My cell phone, the calendar is filled with bullet points because I'm all about the lists. Sit down this afternoon and take 20 minutes and make a list. List how you'd like to be remembered by those who love you. When you're gone someday, sit down and make a list. This is what I'd like my child to say about me. I guarantee you what you don't want your child to say. My dad worked so much that he never shared any of my interests. That's not what you want him to say. I guarantee I know what you don't want your daughter to say. My mother was so self-absorbed that she never shared any of my interests. That's not what you want. What kind of home do you really want to build? And refocus your family and its priority. What about family night? What about family night? You know, when I look back on my life and my childhood, you know one of the things that I remember most vividly? I remember my dear old dad sitting down on the fireplace in our family room and trying to stumble his way through a family night, a family devotion. Because the church had given us this book, and the dad was supposed to sit down and read the verse, and then he was supposed to ask the questions, and then he was supposed to have a prayer. And my dad wasn't trained for any of that. My dad didn't have a theology degree, but my mom kept needling him, and he decided to do it, and, and we sat down, and he'd stumble his way through it. It took 15, 20 minutes, and we were done. And oh, by the way, we didn't do it consistently, probably the same as your family. We kind of hit and miss, but I'll never forget that. I couldn't tell you how many minibikes and motorcycles I owned growing up. I couldn't tell you the places we went on vacation, at least most of them. I couldn't tell you how many ball teams I played on and Cities we traveled to to play baseball or football or basketball or soccer. I couldn't tell you any of those things, but I can tell you that. What keeps you from picking Tuesday, Dad, and saying, look, this is going to be our family night. It's going to take 15 minutes after dinner. Or we're going to make dinner revolve around family night. We're going to order in pizza because the kids love pizza. Who doesn't? And we're going to introduce the God dialogue into our home. How about patience? My dad was one of the patient men, most patient men I've ever known. Mm. How about joy? My mom brought joy into our home. Not stress, not drama, joy. How about unconditional love? I always knew that no matter what, my parents loved me. Refocus your family's priorities. Lastly, obligate yourself to them. Obligate yourself to that ideal. Obligate yourself to a godly example. Pledge to one another that regardless of how far away culture moves from the biblical ideal, my family will not be moved. We will not stray, for we are determined. The stakes are too high. It's not worth it anyway, because I will not allow my family to move away from the place of God's greatest, most consistent blessing. I'm going to put an image on the screen. This is two family trees here. One belongs to Jonathan Edwards. The other belongs to Max Jukes. 
Several years ago, researchers studied the family trees of these two individuals. One of these gentlemen listened to and recognized the voice of God. The other rejected it. One of these gentlemen married a woman of like character, and both of them took their family away from God. The other one married a woman of like character, and both of them nudged their family toward God. Max Jukes, J-U-K-E-S, was an unbelieving man, a complete and total skeptic of the Word of God, self-sovereign in every way. Of his descendants, and by the way, over 1,200 were studied, 300 plus became professional vagrants, meaning they took from the system, worked it, and never contributed anything to it. 440 physically wrecked their lives by a depraved lifestyle. 130 were sent to prison for an average of 13 years, seven of those for murder. Over 100 became alcoholics, 60 became thieves, 190 became public prostitutes. Of the 20 who finally learned to trade, 10 of the 20 learned that trade in prison. It cost the state of New York $1.5 million to care for them, and yet they never returned anything to society. In about the same exact era, the family of Jonathan Edwards was studied as well. Jonathan Edwards was a man of God, and he married a woman of like character. Of their descendants, over 300 became clergymen, missionaries, or theological professors. A hundred became college professors. Over a hundred became attorneys, and 30 of them became judges. 60 of them became physicians. Over 60 of them became authors. 14 became presidents of universities. There were numerous giants of American industry in this man's family tree. Three became U.S. congressmen, and one of them became the vice president of the United States. Now, I give you this example because I want you to know that the ideal matters. It matters. And there is no better time to start caring for your family tree than now. It is your responsibility, parents, to teach your children to listen to and respond to God. Several years ago, there was a family in our church who came to me and said, Pastor Mike, pray for my daughter. And they named her. And I knew the daughter. She'd grown up in this church. Evidently, when she graduated high school and went away actually out of state to go to college, her parents been, began doing what I guess pa all parents do. They began wringing their hands. You know, you've done your best with this kid, but now they're several hours away in a totally different environment. Because during her freshman year, she got straight A's. But something changed during her sophomore year. Her grades began to tank. After further investigation, mom and dad realized she's gotten involved with this guy, and we don't like him. He's not the guy we would have ever chosen for our little girl. It wasn't long after that she had moved in with this guy. Their apartment became party central. She was into drugs and alcohol. This is a young woman who grew up in this church with godly parents. Pastor Mike, pray for my daughter. After about nine months of that lifestyle, I sat down and had a conversation with the mom. She said, you won't believe who I heard from this week. It was her daughter. Her daughter called her and said, Mom, God's opened my eyes. This is not the path I should be on. And overnight, that young woman changed her life and reversed its direction. Ladies and gentlemen, that is an example of a young woman who grew up in a home where parents encouraged her to listen to and respond to God.
I don't know what you think about my family because I like to tell the good side of things most often and not the bad, but my family was far from perfect. Far from perfect. No more perfect than yours. Every bit as problematic as yours, I'm certain. But one thing my parents taught me was the value of listening to, revering, recognizing, and responding to the voice of God. That's your responsibility, parents, and I pray you accept it. Let's pray. Father, I look around in this auditorium and all these faces and so many young moms in our church, little babies in the nursery, and I think about the lives that you have for each one of them. And I can only imagine that some of these parents are scared to death because they feel all alone. They feel isolated. How are they going to accomplish this incredibly important task? God, calm them. Remind them that they're not alone. Remind them that you are with them that our church stands with them, supports them, loves them. And God, I pray most of all that they'll never get away from the premier responsibility that they have, that they need to own, which is to make sure their children listen to and respond to you. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. Hope you make it a fantastic week. I will see you next time.